City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Alright, back on City Limits again. Uh, this week with our um, first week of the month transport update and we'll be talking with John McPherson in a little bit. Um, it's Kevin and me, Zeb, on the line today and Karina's in the background, making sure everything runs smoothly. Uh, how are you doing, Kevin? All right, Zeb, and, uh, and you? You're, um, oh, can I ask you, Zeb, by the way, last week, because I had a week off last week, and you were talking to Meg uh, and mentioned some some academic discipline. I can't think what it was now, but you mentioned you'd studied it, but then you said, I did that years ago, and you, you'd seem, or long ago, and you seem so young to me, I keep thinking, what do you regard as a long time ago? I mean, I regard that as about 40 years or something. <laughs> Yeah, I was probably talking about my Master of Environment, which actually wasn't very long ago at all. I only finished it halfway through last year, but I think lockdown has just felt like a decade in right. itself. <laughs> <laughs> so, so last year was now a long time ago. Yes, okay. <laughs> Look, a couple of things, by the way. Um, the, the Herald Sun, we might as well kick up with them because they're always valuable. Um, the... the they had a their business page last week had a big headline. Foxtel has shown us the future. Streaming is key to success in this raving story, um, which is interesting because, of course, Foxtel happens to be owned by Rupert Murdoch, who also happens to own, as we all know, the Herald Sun. So they're actually saying what a great job they're doing themselves, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, I do. That's interesting because as well, like, do you have Foxtel? I don't have Foxtel. I don't know anyone no, that I has certainly Foxtel. No, you got. I mean, it's pay TV. You've got to. Um, yes, it's it's bloody awful, and it's it's taken over football and everything. But it's uh, it, it's uh, it, you know it, it's, uh, actually I I don't see why people should have to pay at all for pay. You know, pay TV seems to me to be just another intrusion by the by the um, business community to get more money out of people when we've got pay TV, which doesn't perfectly good job well not a perfectly good job but it does the job yeah, um, hmm. yeah. and also in the Herald Sun uh, one of their very conservative writers Rita Panahine backed up by Bolt and all the others uh, headline last week brutal actions of our police are indefensible and they're all defending the uh, neo-fascists to roam the streets and I thought well that's, that's encouraging to the degree that uh, presumably when the coppers are belting us and they get this new paramilitary stuff they've now got and firing rubber bullets at us, they'll also support us against the coppers. I've no doubt about that. Um, mm. Those people. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure yeah. if it, I'm not sure if it extends that far as <laughs> support. <laughs> That's a surprise. Well, yes, and another, just another story this week I found interesting. A, a woman called Sarah Hunter is the chief economist in Australia of BIS Oxford Economics. She's from England and she's come out here with, and she's married an Australian. But she talks about economics as being something that more people should study, girls should study. It's really interesting. You can do great things for the world. And she makes the point that. Um, having spent more than a decade as a macroeconomist at BIS expert in the UK, New York and Australia, her experience has only reinforced her conviction about improving people's lives. If we can make sure those gains are spread throughout society, that is a wonderful thing to achieve. That's what gets me out of bed and what I like to think about. And I thought, well, her heart's probably in the right place, but if she's really going to use economics to make people's lives a lot better. She needs to, in fact, talk about changing the whole basis of economics altogether and uh, getting rid of the system in which she works. But I just thought it was fascinating. She's probably probably genuinely wants to make people's lives better, but she's not going to do it working in capitalism. Yeah, I'm sure she does. And it, to, to a degree, I think 
she definitely has a point that more people, if more people um, were educated on economics, then perhaps more people would be able to like mount um, a more like robust argument against aspects of the, the economic system that we exist in now. Um, whereas at the moment, to a lot of people, including me to a large extent, the economy is just like this weird floating word and like I don't understand the business world enough to even uh, like mount a full critique on it, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. I mean, I mean, if more people were educated, I suppose that's right. They could see through, to put it mildly, see through the crap, and yeah, exactly. uh, and, yeah. and realize realize that it's an economy that's actually um, exploiting exploiting everybody that uh, everybody it employs anyway, and 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 the community generally, and uh, makes money for, as we know, the very few. Uh, on on such matters. Um, there was, of course, a, a, a youth conference held in Milan last week, uh, which is great to see these that we've mentioned many times, young people like yourself, in fact, um, Zeb, who were out there fighting for the environment. Uh, and again, uh, Greta Thunberg was there, and she she got stuck into Boris Johnson, poor old, poor old Boris, for his inactive record on fighting climate, she said. And um our leader's lack of action is a betrayal of all present and future generations. And she said, um, this is not about bunny hugging or build back better, blah, 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 green economy, blah, blah, blah. This is all we hear about us from our so-called leaders, words that sound great but have led to no action. Yeah. And again, um, there was a report came out uh, from... Um, the University of Brussels, in which worked with the Save the Children Fund, look at, looking worldwide, and talks about the fact that the children born in 2020 are going to face massive, well, even in Australia, Australian children born in 2020 will experience four times as many heat waves, three times as many droughts and far more bushfires and floods as those born in 1960, this report shows. And in, in, one, in places, children born in some parts of the Middle East in 2020 will have lived through 10 times more heat waves than those born in 1960. So it's, it's, it's absolute warning. And young woman Ella Simon, who part of the school strike for climate protests in Australia, who attended the, or don't know if she attended, probably online, the, the Milan conference, Milano, um, she says, I want to see our leaders being called out. I want to see them acknowledge the fact that they haven't done anything and that Australia is the second worst country on the list of taking action on the climate crisis. I want to see them taking in what us young people put forward in Milano. Um, and um, at the same time, another woman, a much older one, Bridget McKenzie from the National Party, of course, tells us that uh, it's much more important to support uh, coal mining and, and cows farting in paddocks than uh, anything about climate change. Um, mm, so we yes. get two different sides of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a there's a school strike for climate event coming up soon, I think. I think it's on the 15th mm. of October. So perhaps we'll have a bit more uh, to say about that when that happens. That's right. They have to get back to school to be able to strike, of course. That's the problem, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, the timing of getting kids back to school might be quite appropriate because it, it gives them time to get back and then strike. I mean, on the other hand, it's probably fairly easy to just not turn on your Zoom in the morning and thereby be striking from school. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, there, are, there are there are some disturbing things though on the environment. Some pretty disturbing stuff coming out. Uh, the U.S. has declared twenty three species extinct, including one of the world's largest woodpeckers, dubbed the Lord God Bird. The Fish and Wildlife Service proposed to remove the birds, mussels, fish, as well as a plant and fruit bat from Endangered Species Act protections because government scientists have given up ever fighting them again. Perhaps the most iconic of the species was the ivory-billed woodpecker with the last indisputable evidence of existence coming in the 1940s. So um, we're seeing, you know, just continuing this this uh, destruction of, and Australia's way up on top, of course, in all this, but the destruction of 
of species and a, a, a really dreadful report in the last day and we're recording this on Tuesday, Zeb, so I think by the time we go to air tomorrow, um, Wednesday, as people hear this, hopefully this will be much more in the news. But And I'm going to read this at a bit of length because it's, it's a quite disturbing story. A large oil spill off the Southern California coast has left fish dead, birds mired in petroleum and wetlands contaminated in what local officials call an environmental catastrophe. The U.S. Coast Guard, heading a clean-up response involving federal, state and city agencies, announced an around-the-clock investigation into how the spill occurred. An estimated 570,000 litres, or 3,000 barrels, had spread into an oil slick covering about 34 square kilometres off the Pacific Coast, of the Pacific Ocean, since it was first reported on Saturday morning. The mayor of Huntington Beach told a news conference she called the spill an environmental catastrophe... It's and a John, potential ecological disaster. Um, John here trying to cut in just to say hi. Oh, John, welcome to the show, yes. Thank you. And um, can I just say on those litres, litres, I read this morning 780,000 litres. It's increasing so all the time, obviously, yeah. yeah. Um, yep. And the spill was... The spill was caused by a company called uh, Beta Offshore, a California subsidiary of Houston-based Amplify Energy. And um, the head of that said the, the they'd cut off the, um, the oil and suctioned it out, and they were still trying to determine what caused it. Uh, but the usual suspects are saying you know, the usual things. But uh, there's no doubt that when this was first um, first put in, when this when this oil rig was first were constructed, they would have told us this sort of thing simply couldn't happen. Uh, but um, unfortunately, it has again, and uh, it, it this looks like being a, a massive problem in that in that area. Massive problem. Yeah. Sorry, Zip. Go on. Oh, I didn't really have much to add except that I did see that headline just before I came on to. Um, to record this and I didn't have the heart to, to look into it. So thanks for updating me on that as well. It's pretty pretty dreadful, isn't it? The uh, Okay, John, welcome to the show. John, of oh, course, John, thank Mc, you. John McPherson is, of course, our regular commentator on transport issues and he's going to talk about those very shortly. Um, but before, I'm going to upset you by going into other things first, of course, just to make sure that uh, you know okay. you don't, don't get carried away. Yeah. Anyway, ha- how are you? Oh, getting better, thanks. I had a pretty pretty reasonable night's sleep sleep last night. Right. Cut, sadly, they're cutting back the painkillers. <laughs> right. Yeah. We should mention to people that John is actually re- on, on he's actually online with us uh, from a hospital bed or a rehab hospital bed. Who he's recently had yeah. surgery and. Uh, He's recovering, so uh, it's it's great to have you on, John. Because most people in that situation would say, "I'll get stuff for the month. We're not going to come on." But thank you. Oh no, no, no it was great, Kevin. I was able to use the excuse of this program to avoid a, a, a re, you know rehabilitation session. So. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, so we, we're being used, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. yeah another, look, another one I wanted to raise is the, the secrecy of government that has been going on. And uh, we're seeing it now with freedom of information stuff where they're, they're blocking all sorts of things. And also they use cabinet in cabinet confidentiality to block all sorts of things. Like, for instance... They're now saying that the papers and the various spreadsheets that were associated with both the sports rorts affair and the car park rorts affair from the federal government can't be made public because they were they're, they're covered by cabinet confidentiality with suspicion that someone must have mentioned them in cabinet one day just to make sure they were covered by it. But it's sort of an ongoing going thing, yeah. Yeah, oh, there's such a furore about all of that at the moment with, um, of course, Gladys Berejiklian uh, stepping down and um, discussions about, I don't know if you saw Barnaby Joyce's quotes about his his view on the New South Wales ICAC being akin to the Spanish Inquisition. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's kind of telling what um, politicians' view of, corruption is which is that they think it's just completely acceptable 
Well, it's really proved the Barnaby's living through centuries ago, living medieval Spain inside his head. So he's just proving, just proving that by quoting um, the, the Inquisition, uh, you know, as a as a modern factor in uh, you know, politics. Yeah, and also the the they of course use they they're making it increasingly difficult to get anything under freedom of information as well. Uh, so much so they've been taken to court many times, and courts are increasingly now, uh, in fact, saying they're wrong. But nonetheless, there's still it takes ages now to get get information out. So the whole Freedom of Information Act is being turned on its head. Uh, in yeah. fact, Mark Dreyfus, the Shadow Attorney General, accused the government of systematically abusing FOI laws. Although, if Labor was in government, would it do the same thing? Well, probably. Um, the other, the other way, way area where there, where again such things are being used is in the tax department with the big four accounting firms. The tax office, these people are using not 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 cabinet confidentiality, but legal privilege uh, by saying that in their advice to companies about how, as I was going to say, not to dodge or avoid tax, but how to meet their legal tax obligations as they always tell us they do uh, when the tax department tries to get information out of them or documents they say well they're covered by legal privilege but the tax department's now going to court fighting a lot of that claiming that these people in fact are simply getting maybe if, if at all say a very junior lawyer to say something that doesn't really matter or is, but but it it means once that happens they can claim it's covered by confidentiality so that's another area where secrecy is is taking over so you've got both government and and um and business practicing very much secrecy and using hiding behind either government either cabinet confidentiality or legal privilege yeah the the freedom of information um seems to be really facing some problems because i also uh in my own experience of fois uh when i was at university um there was the fossil free campaign which was um, trying to get the university, uh, in my case, the University of Melbourne, to cut ties with fossil fuel companies in their investment portfolio. And one of the barriers that the campaign faced was that they would put in an FOI to just find out in the first place what fossil fuel companies the university was investing in. And most of it is just completely redacted because of commercial confidentiality. Uh, and then on top of that, there are lots of kind of tactics that um, organisations can use to really drag out the freedom of information process. So they have a certain period of time within which they have to reply. So they wait till the very end of that time. Um, so everything takes like twice as long as it needs to. And a lot of these kind of processes end up creating more and more barriers that sort of stop people being able to um, like find out what they need to then launch a campaign about something. Yeah, that's right. And, and they, they've one of two things, they're becoming more expensive anyway. And secondly, when you do get it, it's often heavily redacted. In the, so you, you can't find out what you want anyway. So they're really covering up big time. On such matters, by the way, and people like... Um, like the uh, the big four accounting firms around the world, uh, the Australia Institute's launching a campaign to try and have more information also about how the government is using those firms because um, they've been um, they've been spending billions of dollars on these big companies and getting rid of public servants. And in fact, Australia Institute senior researcher Bill Brown said that the 1.1 billion annual cost for work to the largest consulting firms is equivalent to about 12,346 public service jobs. But taxpayers have little understanding of what they are paying for. And of course, it's been, it's parallel to the fact that they are getting rid of public servants and, um, and uh, in fact, taking on these, these big four companies. Um, the the federal government spent $1.2 billion with the five companies over the year. That's the big four plus a company called Accenture, which won a $340 million contract 
uh, and as well. And plus, nearly five billion is spent every year on external staff for the federal government, and that figure includes labour hire, outsourced staff who are not counted under staffing caps. So, again. We're seeing um, these companies, and 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 we we don't know. I mean, what the Australia Institute is trying to find out is what are they doing? What are they getting for their money? And why aren't public servants doing the job that public servants should be doing? But of course, since this government was elected in 2013, the um, pub they've enforced public servants caps and expanded the services they offer to you know well, these other people. So, um, and parallel to that, in the last week. PricewaterhouseCooper, one of the big four companies, it, it, it held a, or a section of it, its human resources executives had some sort of trivia night in which one mocked Chinese accents and another one dressed up as a bat from Wuhan, and there's now an investigation into the racism involved in that. Yeah. Uh, and of course, they've said, the chief executive says, well, it did not reflect the values and culture of our firm, which they say every single time this happens, of course, uh, tearing up the Juhan Caves also with Rio didn't, wasn't their values either, but it just happened to happen. Um, and um, and there are also some, some questions that had answers that they considered to be not exactly, although there was one that was anti-Chinese again in what the answer was. So these are the very companies who are getting billions of our money. Yeah, that seems very reflective of the culture of the firm. I don't see how you could argue any other way. But, um, yeah, of course, there's also, and I'm sure everyone is talking about this as well, the, the Pandora papers that have recently been published that's sort of talking about all of this kind of secret um, secret money business on a global scale. Yeah, I don't regard that as news, really. It's just taken for granted, isn't it? <laughs> Every few years, one of these reports comes out with lots of papers released that show that, goodness me, the, the super rich of the world here in Australia and overseas and the autocrats around the world are making billions and dodging taxes. It's... Uh, it's just it's just a part of the course as far as I could say, but yeah. there they go. Yeah, certainly got a point. But it reflects on what we were saying earlier, doesn't it? It reflects on the capitalist system, of course, and what it's all about. Uh, perhaps we'll go for a quick break, and when we come back, we'll chat a little bit more with John McPherson. We shall indeed, and hope his doctors uh, kept him alive. <laughs> Australia has joined together with their imperial mates from the US and the UK, forming a new military partnership, AUKUS. The AUKUS Anti-AUKUS Caucus is bringing together activists from across the country to launch a fight back, and we need you to join us. Panellists include Scott Ludlam, Guy Rundle, Clinton Fernandez, Felicity Ruby, Tyler Mangione, Dimity Hawkins, Jacob Greck and Dave Sweeney. Join us online on Thursday the 7th of October at 7pm. For more information and to register, visit renegadeactivist.org or check out Renegade Activist on all the socials. A 3CR supporter. Okay, Zeb, we're back. Um, and uh, John's still with his doctor, obviously, so we'll, we'll get back to him very shortly. Well, we haven't done this, though. Here we go. Hang on. You can probably just hear that little trickle. I drank most of the pot before we poured it. It's shocking. Um, look, an item I did want to talk about, though, Zeb, uh, is that there, at the moment there is industrial disputes on the wharves and also with trucking companies on the wharves because the, the, the companies won't negotiate as they always do. They just refuse to negotiate and then blame the workers. And in, in trucking, it's mainly to do with uh, with one, well, they need more pay and conditions, but also there's a um, move on to have private companies to, to taking over the taking over deliveries and they're cutting the rates enormously. And so the, the normal workers are having either to cut their rates or work harder and do all sorts of things as well. So it's it's they're both disputes that are really important. But what happens in these cases, as you as we always see, is that they quote the bosses, 
and the and the papers themselves, the mainstream media, tell us that or it's being held up. For instance, a front page headline in the Financial Review last week: Port strikes to cripple Christmas. Furniture, televisions, electronics, toys, sporting goods, and food are facing months of delays, etc. And again, with the with the trucking ones, how it's going to hold up vaccines? And the the union has given guarantees, by the way, that vaccines will not be held up. But that doesn't stop them saying they will. But it's interesting. In each case, they they simply blame the workers for holding up whatever's being held up, but never ever blame the employers who simply refuse to negotiate and force the unions to take industrial action. Yeah, funny that. It is. It is very funny. Again, it's another reflection on the system, of course. But it, but it's interesting in trucking that the uh, that and it, of course the the official Australia Post delivery is one of the people involved. They've changed their name, and, and some speculation around they've changed the name so that it can be ultimately privatised. Because as we know now, parcel delivery is a big profit maker. But that, of course, is also why Uber-type people are moving in and cutting rates and and undermining the wages and conditions of those who've long worked in the industry. So it's it's a pretty serious thing, and it mm-hmm. needs and it certainly well, and it the awful thing, as I say, is that every time it happens, the mainstream media blame the unions, but never think of blaming the bosses for, in fact, causing the problem in the first place. Yeah, which is just like, you know, it. If we did all learn about economics, but we weren't, we didn't learn in a way that was just indoctrinating us into capitalist ideology, then a lot more people would be critical of those sorts of reporting. But at the moment, it's kind of taken as completely reasonable. Yeah, it's absolutely reasonable that that the bosses should not negotiate, and that uh, it's totally unreasonable that workers should therefore react and attempt to fight for better wages and conditions, or fight to have to preserve wages and conditions from being undermined and undercut. Mm-hmm. Okay, look, John isn't back yet. Look, we'll take a break. Wait, and when John comes back, we'll start talking transport with him. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming an increasingly important actor in the military-industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs, 
on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Okay, back on City Limits, and we've got John McPherson back on the line. John, doctor's given you um, a clean bill or a near-clean bill of health, we hope. Yeah, pretty good, actually, yes, yes. He's, oh, he's good, still, good, lovely to hear. He's still minutes away from, from me and looked me up and down and decided <laughs> I, I, I seem to be doing well. <laughs> Oh, well, that's great. It's great to hear. We'll have you back next month in that case. Um, but, um, Zeb, you had a couple of things you wanted to talk to John about in relation to transport. Uh, yeah, now, what what were they? Well, one thing I was wondering about, John, is whether you knew much about when the Metro Tunnel uh, eventually gets built, uh, there's a plan to make North Melbourne Station into this new one, Arden, and it's going to be like a big hub. Uh, and there's also plans for development in the area. But according to my knowledge, it's that area is also very prone to flooding. Uh, and I wondered whether you knew much about that, had anything to say? <laughs> Interesting, yeah. It's very close, not far from the Maribyrnong River. So the Maribyrnong River certainly floods. I can't recall exactly how low that area is but I, but it is fairly low and that they're finding that the issue of flooding around um, underground railways overseas is becoming a bigger and bigger issue because um, particularly on rivers and things that are tidal and are near the near the ocean you get a um, storm or a hurricane or something rather and you get high water levels and you get water uh, washed down into the tunnels that's happened now a couple of times in New York mm-hmm. and it's happened a couple of times elsewhere as well. Yeah, I think it's happened in London as well, but to only some minor stations. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it wasn't so major in London, but there's every possibility it will be in the future. Um, there are lots and lots of areas where the tunnels are not well protected from river, river waters rising or from maybe in some cases ocean water as well. And it's a really big issue if you've got to re, if you've got to re, recharge the tunnel, you've got to rebuild it, and uh, it's a big project because everything starts to rot with the uh, salt water and the uh, rusting. So even ten years later, you can still be finding more issues with the infrastructure starting to deteriorate. The concrete that the tunnels are built from can be badly affected too. Really a big issue, and because. Nobody anywhere in the world has really been thinking about, you know, tidal rises on any scale. It's only really in the last decade or so that it's actually been thought about. And there are plenty of places all over, the, you know, all over the world, really, where there are big cities, where there, there are metro systems to build close to the rivers and, and oceans that are going to be a real issue in the future. It's interesting that because um, just recently Infrastructure Australia brought out a report that said that state governments that pitch road and rail projects to Infrastructure Australia could be forced to detail how the development will withstand natural disasters or, or face rejection. And they say examples of resilience planning include lifting the height of bridges or seawalls to allow for rising water levels and not putting emergency generators in the basement of buildings where they could be easily flooded. And the new guidelines are voluntary but could be made mandatory along with other requirements such as targets for the use of recycled materials. So they're saying that we really have to think about climate change and all this planning. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's just plain common sense. And if, you know, if politics ran on common sense, all these sort of things would be being done already. But um, the road, the metro road tunnel, is likely to have all those sort of issues as well. 
and we don't know how how well that's been designed to protect it, you know, because it's you know going underneath the Maribyrnong River and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and you know is very close to the Maribyrnong. So, mm. so all I can say is the same issues will apply. Yes, it's something clearly that the planners of these projects to date haven't really taken into account. I think that's right. They're pretty relaxed about you know everything going on as before, you know. But yeah, the big one was ten years ago in in New York, the Sandy, um, I think they called it Hurricane, um, you know, Tempest, whatever you call it, you know, um, cyclone. It was a it was a massive thing, and they they discovered then that they had to have sealed doors. The only way to stop the rising seawater getting into the tunnels was to sealing doors seal on the tunnels. And um, they had some, but they didn't have many. And the ones that the openings that didn't have these seal doors suffered really badly. And they're now working towards sealing all the, all the entrances, um, but they haven't got there yet. I think they've started, but there's probably going to be another decade before they're finished. So they're, 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 getting, they're getting on with it, but I think they're well ahead of us here in Australia. Yeah. There was something else there? Yeah. The other thing that I saw recently in the news is the is the new electric buses that are planned. Yeah. And the switch from whoever we have now to golly, I've lost my info for it, but there's going to be maybe thirty six electric buses. I think I remember what it was. They were proposing a fleet of what sixty new electric buses, and also converting some of the current buses to run on a you know, a fuel blend that was more, um, you know, less polluting. Mm-hmm. I think that that's what I recall. All I could think was, well, I couldn't convert the, some of the present buses to, to be fully electric. Electric buses are, in many ways, very simple mm-hmm. compared with current buses. It's, it's marvellous to see they've finally ordered a few, a few electric buses for Melbourne, but I can't recall the size of the Melbourne bus fleet, but I think it might be around 600. So they might have ordered enough buses to um, cover 10% of the present fleet. But, but electric buses are just so much better, so many ways, that they should be, um, they should be, you know, the whole fleet should be converted as quick as possible, which is what, what's happening in um, China and it's happening in Asia and I think it's happening in Europe. And, of course, with, with buses, the danger of... Uh of COVID, the the depots, the North Fitzroy and the Doncaster depots that run the buses that go along to to Doncaster, the former publicly owned buses, uh, because of COVID getting into the depots, the drivers have been stood down or have to go into isolation. And the same thing happened with trams last week from the Essendon depot. So COVID is causing problems in public transport in terms of staff not being available. Yeah, and the same thing's happening on D-Line on the country track services as well. It's a, it seems to be a problem right across the network. And the only way around that, Kevin, would be automatic buses. <laughs> yes, thank you, John. That's very good. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a problem. Another point this week came out, the government talking about the city rail loop that you, I know, are critical of, John. But the government said it promised family homes and other residential landowners will not be affected and yet a story came out a few days later that about 300 homes between Cheltenham and Box Hill were door-knocked and sent letters by the authority in November and March notifying residents their properties were likely to be required for the project. So what's going on there? Yeah, well, that's a bit awkward. I think they might be, be splitting, splitting hairs. Saying, oh, no, your property is the railway line. But your property will be required for the monthly hours to store the train and maintain. <laughs> I think that I think that might be the clever clever split. Well, who knows? Yeah. And you know, it's true. They certainly do need the storage yards and the maintenance yards. And of course, they'll be they'll be they'll be things that'll be running 24 hours a day. And um, if you have have one of those over your back fence, there'll be quite a lot of light. Mm. Yeah, and of course you're you're critical of that that altogether, aren't you? Really? Well, I am certainly at this stage in in the city's development. Yeah, it seems to me there are so many things that need to be finished with with what what's our present 
rail system before we go on to do this to this orbital um, circular thing. You know, the um, there are so many uh, things that need to be done on all the, all the lines. You know, many of those lines have single track sections at the outer end. Many of the lines don't go as far as they should go to connect properly to interchange points with bus services and tram services and things like that. There's just so much needs to be done just to bring the whole thing together before we before we jump into the 21st century. You know, this whiz bang thing that appeals to people who never never use the system. Mm-hmm. Actually, sitting here where I am in Hawthorne in the rehabilitation hotel, I'm looking down onto Hawthorne Railway Station, and that's the line that goes out to uh, Box Hill and um, Ringwood. And it's a very busy line by Melbourne standards, and it's, it's yeah. truly ama- amazing in peak hour that they have trains running on. They've got three tracks, and they have trains running every two minutes on each track, some of them into the city and some of them out, out of the city. And you say to yourself, gee, they do know how to run frequent services. They just don't <laughs> want to run frequent Yeah, that, that was the danger of putting you so close to it, John, in a hospital. Right. I should have thought of that. <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good point. The, the, <laughs> you know, there's nobody on the trains, of course, but they're running the full service, mm. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's quite impressive, you know, particularly when you know there are trains coming in and leaving each of the three platforms all at the same time. You know, you think, surely the drivers get a, get get the vapors when they when they see so many trains close together like that. You know. <laughs> It can be done. It can be done, even in Melbourne, yes. Mm-hmm. It does show, though, that, like, you can't have a public transport system that's completely, like, private or trying to run for profit because there's absolutely no way that you could get uh, private companies without any incentives to, to run services that are mainly going to be empty. Yes, that's right. That's right to, to agree. Zeb, but not entirely. I mean, yeah. most you know metro type public transport systems do require a subsidy to run, mm-hmm. and you know, and there's nothing particularly wrong with that. It's just that's the way the way things go. If you look at the road system, the road system doesn't pay for itself overall either. It, however much the road engineers like to claim it does, it just doesn't. And so you know, you, you have to con- conclude that. Transport as a whole does require extra funding from somebody, usually the, the city government or the state government or sometimes the federal government, to keep it functioning at a good level. It's just the way of the world. And it doesn't matter how hard people at the IPA scream and yell and jump up and down. It's just the way it is. So, you know, you can see now that, you know, Melbourne's gone through its process of having a metro system, you know, that it's at least out to people to run it. And they tried to make that all sort of run at a sort of a profit. But you can see now that the that the bureaucrats politicians have now concluded that it actually can't be done. Can't actually force it to make a profit, however hard they try. And so I think they resign themselves to the fact that you do you know, you do you do need subsidies to run it. The cost of roads also should must include the costs of pollution, the costs of accidents of, on the health system, all those external costs that um, that clearly are part of road transport. Yeah, absolutely, and that's another thing that, that that the road guys try very hard to to resist adding into the um, adding into the package. Yeah, I mean the um, the, the trains aren't, aren't adding much in the way of pollution. And uh, they're certainly not having as many accidents. Um, and they're available for people with disabilities in the way that roads, you know, some, you know, some people with disabilities manage in cars, but a lot can't. And they need to be in, need to be on, on trains, buses or trams. So you, you've got to cater for those people as well. So, you know, it's just, it's just the way of the world. And the bigger the city, you know, the more crowded the city. The more likely likely it is that it's going to have to be um, public transport that takes up the strain, and, and even American cities acknowledge, acknowledge that now. The big American cities, they've gone through their motorisation phase. Now they're try, going to try electrified. 
But even so, that's not going to work. In the end, they're going to have to accept that some form of centrally managed metro, metro system is going to be what they use. Yeah. Another item I found interesting this week, John, the New South Wales Department of Transport, Transport for New South Wales, has changed its advertising company and given out a $500 million contract to a company making them the largest public transport advertising contract in Australia, which will more than treble the previous outdoor advertising revenue on the Sydney Trains Network. And the, the, the department says all revenue from these new advertising contracts will be reinvested into running the Sydney Trains Network, which is a great outcome for athletes, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I found that interesting because in Victoria, if that's the case, if advertising makes lots of money for the system, and with our split ownership, so to speak, who yeah. gets it? Does it go to the Does it go to the government and be, get reinvested, or does the private company that hires the system effectively just simply well, pocket it? Do we? It you probably it, don't know that, but who? It's well, interesting, it isn't pocket, it? It gets pocketed by the the private operator, um, and it's part of their income stream, as it were. So it doesn't go back into the system, obviously. Well, it goes it goes to the to the operators as part of their income, their income being the you know the, the fares that people pay is is the other one, and the and the other the other one is probably the um, the payments for use of space for advertising signage, yeah. And then the government assumes, well, okay, that the uh, private operator is getting the income from the signage, and so that's part of their income. Therefore, that should cover that should be something we don't have to pay them. You know that's. That's how they're trying to pretend it's going to work. But it won't really. It won't work like that in the end. Very mm. soon it'll, it'll be discovered that, oh, yeah. no, the costs of you know, looking after the advertising are higher than predicted, you know. And, it's, you know, and, and, the, and the operators will come crawling back to the government and saying, no, that little bit of revenue isn't really working for us. <laughs> You'll have to pay us some more from the central pot. And the and the government will probably roll its eyes and say, yeah, that's right, do so, because the government seems to nearly always, you know, shrug its shoulders and pay up when these things are put to it. So mm. it's meant to be this very very fierce, you know, uh, sharp edged um, system where everything's, um, you know, paid for, but in reality, it's it's not really, and it can't be, um, because because the operators can always threaten to walk. And the last thing that the state government wants is the operators to walk, even if it costs them more money than they think it should cost them. On the whole, they'll they'll keep paying up whatever it costs to keep them working, you know, keep them functioning. So they're trying to pretend yeah. they're trying to pretend they've got a system that's got a sort of a commercial a commercial outlook to it. But really in reality they haven't and they can't. How often do they have to renew the contracts? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm, this is roughly, I think it seems to be around every five years. And the present operator, I think, gets a, you know, they get the first shot at the new contract. And so, and that's, there's some logic to that, that the company that's been running the system gets the next chomp at the project to see what they can do for a, you know, for a good, a good or bad deal. Because after they've been running the system for, five, say, five years, they'll have an idea of what it actually costs to run. So they are possibly the right, you know, the people to keep going if they haven't done anything terrible. But, you know, quite often they have got done terrible things that irritate the government. And then the government's very prone to hand things over to a new operator. Mm. Um, and it happens, you know, quite often that's exactly what happens, yeah. You know, it's just a case of, how things work out, and really, you know, really, you are expecting the operators to take on a lot of not debt, but the problem is that the new operator doesn't have as much awareness of all the costs and all, all the downsides of running the system as the previous operator will. So when they go to put their, their their deal together, they're likely to do it on a more optimistic basis, uh, which may mean they'll get the deal, but it also means that they won't actually make as much money out of it. And then the government will get irritated with them if they want to squeeze more money out of the government. It just goes round in circles. 
And it's not necessarily very worthwhile because you end up where you started. And at the end of the day, the government is still, at the end, really shouldering the responsibility. They, they are to pay up if there's, or, or fix a problem. Yeah, they are. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard for the government to give up the responsibility that they'd like to give up because it's because the government is always under threat from the populace who's, who's going to say, hey, what happened to our services, even if it's a private company running them. It's going to be the the state government that's, that's really leaned on. So in the end, the, um, the, the state government can't get around the issue of... Um, of operators who don't do a good job. Speaking of operators, John, um, and we're just about out of time, but um, just recently you're aware that um, the Transurban has won the right to, or well, has taken over West Connex in Sydney, the new toll road up there. And, and toll, one of the biggest trucking companies, of course, it's told its drivers, this is a reminder to ensure you are not using toll roads unless you have authorization to do so. In most cases, the cost of the toll roads outweighs any benefit we receive from using them. And because of the contract where they can put up by 4% a year or inflation, whichever is higher, the costs are going through the roof. There's one suggested that one trip on the new road if you if you also go on to a couple of other roads, could cost trucks up to sixty dollars per trip, and mm-hmm. the the union and the and the and they're saying the union and the and the trucking companies themselves are complaining. But extraordinarily, the state government in New South Wales has has um, fines as put as imposing a fine of one hundred and ninety four dollars if trucks use the Pennant Hills Road instead of the new freeway. Uh, so you've got the state government stepping in to force traffic onto a toll road for transurban. Well, that's, that's totally understandable if, if you look at if you see the state government, and it's the same in Victoria. The state governments are in, in, a, in, a, you know, in, a, in a combine with the, um, the toll road builders and operators, you know? And they're just the state governments are just as interested in seeing the um, the toll revenue go up on the toll roads as, as the um, private builders and operators. But, you know, it's it's a long way away from where we were told we were going to be with with the privately operated toll roads, which are going to be somehow in competition with each other or or with something else. That yeah. was going to was going to keep you know the cost of cost of travel by car, you know, really low. Um, but in reality, we know that the, the tollway networks in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane have really been built for the benefit of commercial traffic. Right? Um, the government the government's made the judgment that the commercial traffic would, would benefit from the toll road, but that the commercial operators and so on, did not have the funds to actually build the toll roads, and that a lot of money would have to be extracted from the from the commuter, the car driver as well, in order to put enough pot money in the pot to build these roads, which are really for the benefit of um, the truck. But then now we have the paradoxical situation where the trucks have been squeezed so hard by by the truck operators that they they can't afford to spend the money to get the benefit from using the, um, the toll road. Mm. So it, it's sort of all walking away from, you know, it's, it's all, you know, pretty crazy. But, you know, that is in reality what it's about. Yeah, well, it's all about private profit, of course. But yeah, mob yeah. called CDPQ, which is one of the Canadian um, pension funds that's, that's in partnership with Transurban in this freeway, but it says we are not just buying 20% of a business. We were essentially pretty much joining a group that had the ability and the market positioning to provide a fairly constant deal flow of public-private partnership assets in the region, hospitals, courthouses, and so on. That was ultimately the purpose of this investment. You can say the same of West Connex. There is one road, but there are going to be other roads. 
they yep. say they like Australia because it accepts foreign investors owning and operating assets, and many of its infrastructure <laughs> assets, including airports, have monopolistic features and can be expanded. They've also bought into the port of Brisbane, so they yep. see it purely as making profit out of public assets. Oh, well, that's, that's where it ends up at. Yeah, yeah. But the but there are, you know, there are uh, theorists along the way who see the, you know, the in, in between condition, uh, where you, you know, you are you are doing something good for society by uh, building this infrastructure. Uh, but 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 then you go on to the um, you know Canadian super funds, their level of um, abstraction. Where they're just looking at it and saying, "Oh, well, Australia seems to be a place where they allow their public-private partnerships to make quite a high profit margin." And you know, they're really quite, as you said, quite relaxed about being you know, overseas, overseas owners. So, without saying so much, they're really saying, "Well, those Australians are a bit, uh, pretty much a bunch of suckers, you know, that we can take for a ride." That's basically what's happening. Mm. Don't you think? Uh- and we have been taken for a ride. Yeah, yeah. And, and apparently we're going a, along to a, a ride along a tollway. Yeah. So, Kevin, if I were you, I'd get some money out of um, Twitter and put it in the Canadian Twitter fund. Thanks, John. I'll get my... Right. My, 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 much, if you were me, you wouldn't have any money. Um, but, all right, look, we're going to have to finish here because I think we're out of time, but uh, we've got okay. a bit of editing to do for, um, unfortunately, for... Uh, Karina and uh, Zeb but um, look thanks for your time today John and I hope next month you're not in a hospital bed and we can um, we do do it again and I'm slightly more coherent yeah (laughs) Yeah. well hope we're both more coherent yeah okay Okay. thanks John see you later Zeb thanks okay thanks mate any final comments Zeb Uh, no I think I'm also losing coherence Okay, well, that's it. And next week, of course, we're doing energy issues, and so we'll be back next week. That's it, City Limits. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. I want to be a bus driver. Got to get my peace. Want to see every corner of the city.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.